Hi, I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Join us and be part of the conversation on The Thread, streaming on TVO.org, The Thread with Nam on YouTube and other TVO platforms, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at TVO The Thread. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today on the pod, the first campaign debate took place earlier today in Northern Ontario. We'll give you the blow-by-blow of that. The Green Party unveils its Northern Ontario platform, and we'll follow up on our conversation from last week on the leaders' performances on the hustings. It's Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. That's day seven of the campaign. So let's get to it. The Northern Ontario leaders' debate tends not to get as much attention as the one that will take place on Monday in our studios at TVO, incidentally. But this one is historic because for the first time ever, there were four parties on stage and not just three. Every previous leaders' debate has only had the leader of the PCs, Liberals and NDP. But because Mike Schreiner, the Green Party leader, won a seat in 2018, he has earned his party a place on the debate stage. And that happened earlier today. So, JMM, let's start there. The first ever leaders debate for Mike Schreiner. How do you think he did? I think people who've followed Schreiner for years, as you and I have, uh, you know, won't be surprised that he did well. Uh, the important point uh, for Schreiner is that this is, I, I think, the, f- the first high-profile debate of this campaign, it's fair to say, and he did well in front of a, a larger-than-usual audience for him. Uh, you know, some of the leaders uh, read from notes for their uh, opening and closing remarks. Uh, Schreiner is able to, to speak a bit more extemporaneously, a bit more directly uh, to the audience. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, he had... Uh, particularly strong answers to questions about housing, affordability, uh, and of course, on the environment. I thought he spoke with a great deal of authenticity. And and you know, when he started talking about the opioid crisis, uh, he got a little choked up. And you can tell that that's because he's met far too many people during his time in public life who have suffered through this, and it really gets to him. So yeah, I agree. Schreiner had a good day today. Also, the first appearance on the debate stage for Stephen Del Duca, because he, of course, is a rookie leader for the Liberal Party of Ontario. How did he do? You know, he was able to present his party's uh, platform uh, ably. Um, We have joked innumerable times on this podcast before that he's uh, not the world's most charismatic man. And so, you know, I, I don't think this is a, a natural format for him in that sense. He he got beat up a little bit when he said that the Liberals would restore the Northlander train. Uh, this was a train that used to run from uh, Toronto to uh, Cochrane. Uh, but of course, it was the Liberal government that cancelled that train, uh, although uh, before he was in cabinet, if I recall correctly. Um, he, he did a better job uh, on attacking the uh, PC government and Doug Ford. Um, And I couldn't help but notice this, you know, an interesting angle that he added. You know, of course, the Liberals have said for some time now that they would cancel the 413 highway. And he added a bit of a a regional spin to that, uh, you know, basically saying that, you know, Doug Ford is spending northern Ontario's money to help commuters in southern Ontario without doing anything to to benefit the north. Uh, You know, not necessarily a, a... an earth-shattering uh, uh, accusation there, uh, but I thought it was an interesting uh, to, to see how he's shaping that message for a different audience. All right, this is also the second leaders' debate for Doug Ford. Of course, 2018 being his first. How do you think Doug Ford did? 
He certainly did better than he did in 2018. Um, you know, just of course to, to remind people of the historical context. You know, when he became a PC leader in 2018, uh, they went into an election uh, very, very soon after. He did not have a, a lot of time to learn provincial issues, provincial policy. He came out of the municipal politics world in Toronto, uh, and and that showed uh, in the Northern Leaders debate. Uh, uh, Stephen Del Duca earlier today reminded people that you know. Ford stumbled on a question of immigration policy in a way that showed at the time he just didn't grasp some of the the differences uh, of uh, you know immigration policy in northern Ontario versus the rest of the province. Uh, this time around, he did much better. I was able to give you know more substantial answers. I think was able to to you know at least defend some of his policies over the last uh, four years. Uh, but I mean, if you've been watching his appearances over the last week or so of the campaign. Uh, not terribly surprising. Much of the time uh, that he spent at the debate was really uh, about uh, attacking the other parties or uh, really touting the government's proposals to build more, really tying, ver- trying very hard rather to uh, tie the Liberals and the NDP together. I did not count the number of times he used the expression, get it done. Did you? <laughs> uh, I, I did not, no. I think I might have run out of ink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. Whatever the answer was, it was a lot. Uh, finally, the Northern debate is often seen as a home game for the NDP leader because the NDP has the lion's share of seats in the North. There are 11 seats in Northern Ontario, and in the last House, the NDP had eight out of the 11. They dominate. The PCs had only two, and the Liberals only one. How do you think Andrea Horvath did? I think she had some difficulty uh, breaking in at times. Uh, maybe that's not terribly surprising, given some of the, some of the other people who were on the stage with her. Uh, she did well at, at distinguishing her party. Uh, I think from you know the Liberals and the, the Greens. I don't think anybody needs to distinguish the NDP from uh, Doug Ford and the PCs. Um, but you know it is difficult because you know the the NDP are uh, really trying to attack both the, the Tories and the Liberals at once, and uh, you know it can make a, a, a getting a, a single message track through. Uh, difficult, and, and I'm not sure she accomplished that uh, in this debate. Well, you and I chatted on email before we started taping this podcast, and I think we agreed that the most energetic exchange of the debate focused on the issue of transportation in general and the Northlander, which you've already referenced in particular. And it was interesting because Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, is, of course, a former transportation minister, so he had a bit of a record to defend. And Doug Ford made some promises four years ago some of which have not been fulfilled. So he had a bit of a record to defend. Uh, Before we hear an excerpt from that part of the debate, well, you know what? Let's just do that right now. Here's some of the sound from that part of the debate, and then we'll come back and chat after that. I've stood here so far this afternoon, and I've heard Mr. Ford talk as if he hasn't served as Ontario's premier for the past four years. We need the Northlander, and we also need expanded bus service from Ontario Northland for inner-city bus connections. Are you actually going to do it this time or not? We're the only government that's bringing back the Northlander. I was up there. We're actually (laughs) on the train, and we're moving forward with the Northlander. Doug Ford has had four years, and things have gotten worse. He promised the Northlander. It's not here. He promised Highway 69. It's not here. Okay, what stands out for you there, John Michael, as being, you know, who got good shots in and who who was on defense there? 
Well, you know, I think uh, the representative of the Liberal Party, whoever that was going to be, was going to have a hard time defending uh, the record on the Northlander uh, in northern Ontario. This was uh, a train, I already mentioned this, a train that ran from uh, Toronto to Cochrane. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it never carried that many passengers on any given day, which was part of the reason why the uh, Liberal government before Kathleen Wynne uh, announced its uh, cancellation. It was one of those things that happened a bit under Dalton McGuinty and a bit under Kathleen Wynne. Um, and, uh, you know, it was not a decision that Stephen Del Duca made when he was transportation minister, but hey, he was the transportation minister for the Liberal government, so he's going to take some licks on this. Um, it, it was widely seen in the, the North as an example of how policy gets made in Southern Ontario in ways that don't take into account the uh, difficulties, the costs, the uh, specific conditions uh, of living in Northern Ontario. And, uh, you know, uh, clearly uh, some people in Northern Ontario are still um, quite uh, upset about the cancellation uh, many, many years later. Well, what I found interesting about the exchanges, uh, some of which we just played, we played just a snippet of it, but the alliances on stage, on the debate stage, were quite short term, right? When Stephen Del Duca was on his heels trying to defend what the liberal record was, Doug Ford, Mike Schreiner, and Andre Horvath were both, you know, were all rather going at him pretty hard. And then all of a sudden, somebody pointed out the fact that actually Doug Ford promised to bring it back and he hasn't brought it back yet. And suddenly Schreiner and Del Duca and Horvath are all on the same team, uh, you know, pointing at Doug Ford. So, you know, there, there seemed to be a, a considerable amount of blame to go around for both those guys. JMM, one more word on this, and that is, and you know, here I go, I'm harping on this, I know, but three of the four leaders on the debate stage today ad-libbed their opening remarks. They just spoke. And Doug Ford read his off a prepared text, which he constantly looked down at during the course of his opening remarks. And then after the debate was over, apparently three of the four leaders did post-debate scrums with the uh, local media, and uh, Doug Ford did not. So make of that what you will. I mean, I, I think... We've gotten uh, some pretty solid indications that the uh, Tory campaign does not want to uh, expose uh, Doug Ford to any uh, opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, make a mistake, uh, you know, get into a heated back and forth with Q&As with reporters. And uh, I think this is just another example of that. Uh, if if it wasn't, <laughs> if he wasn't going to get marched in handcuffs to that scrum, uh, he may just decided not to. <laughs> okay, let's continue. In advance of the Northern Leaders debate, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner unveiled his platform for Northern Ontario. Of course, a significant percentage of the jobs north of the French River are in mining and forestry. So, JMM, let's have some of the highlights of the Green Plan for the North. Uh, the Green Party wants to encourage forestry by getting more homes and buildings built with mass timber. This has been an issue uh, that has proceeded in fits and starts in Ontario. Other provinces allow more and taller and different buildings to be built uh, out of wood, or at least uh, mostly out of wood, uh, than Ontario's building code allows. Uh, so the uh, Greens would be proposing to uh, get to allow more of those buildings. Uh, of course, the, the Greens also want to see just more home building in general, so that this could also play into that. Uh, they want to create, uh, and this is a word we uh, addressed in yesterday's episode, uh, they want to create deeply affordable 
affordable homes in the North. Uh, actually, this was raised in the debate uh, today that, you know, as much as uh, housing costs are going up in Southern Ontario, they are really just going up everywhere. And as people have moved out of Southern Ontario for things like remote work, uh, that has had a, a ripple effect on costs in the North. Uh, the Greens want to improve health care by allowing more virtual care. Uh, they want to expand French language educational services, for example, by uh, transferring French language courses from Laurentian University to the University of Sudbury and establishing the uh, University of Sudbury as a stronger standalone French language university. Uh, they want to bring back the French language services commissioner that the Ford government uh, canceled as a standalone office. Uh, and they want to strengthen relationships with indigenous communities in part with a $1 billion investment to help protect indigenous conservation areas. Uh, I guess let me do the full disclosure thing right here. I used to be the chancellor at Laurentian University, uh, which is a ceremonial role of no authority whatsoever, but uh, it's like being the governor general. And um, I was interested when Mr. Schreiner pointed to the fact that in his view, uh, it, it should be impossible going forward for any post-secondary institution in the province to you know, so-called declare bankruptcy or use the bankruptcy legislation of the country uh, in order to uh, do what Laurentian is in the midst of doing right now. And, you know, Laurentian was always one of the very few fully bilingual, tricultural, French, English, and indigenous post-secondary institutions in the country. And uh, there seems to be a strong push right now because of Laurentian status to take those Francophone programs out of Laurentian and take them over to the Université de Sudbury. So I was interested in what Schreiner had to say about that. He supports doing that. Just on the issue of the bankruptcy, I think this is uh, something for people to keep uh, their eyes on because the Auditor General uh, did release a report right before the election started about uh, some of her initial findings about Laurentian University. Uh, we've talked about the the uh, context of the Auditor General and the uh, legislature having to, to do some extraordinary measures to get uh, disclosures from uh, Laurentian's administration on this stuff. But uh, one of her uh, findings was that uh, the administration at Laurentian, uh, you know, had been discussing how to use uh, the bankruptcy laws in the way they ended up doing so uh, well before the crisis. And uh, I, I suspect quite strongly that some future government, whoever uh, forms the government after June 2nd, is is probably going to try and find some legal way to constrain universities in the future because uh, the, nobody uh, of any partisan stripe wants to see a repeat of what happened in Laurentian. Now, one of the things I was interested to find out from Mike Schreiner was, given that he's the leader of the Green Party, could he really support the mining and mineral exploration sector in Northern Ontario, which, of course, accounts for so many jobs and so much revenue? And um, I asked him that during his news conference, and he said, absolutely, yes. And uh, I, I put the question in such a way, so I said, explain to people in the South, you know, who don't know much about mining, whether it's possible to actually do mining and mineral exploration in a way that respects the environment at the same time. And he was quite categorical that, yes, we can. Uh, it's quite possible. There are new, uh, you know, people have this image of mining of, you know, guys 5,000 feet under the ground on their hands and knees with picks. And, you know, it's just not like that anymore. And uh, th there is a very high tech 
if you think EV, electronic, electric vehicles, they have the same kind of thing in mining right now where so much of it takes place in a clean fashion. And, um, you know, being on your hands and knees and knowing how to use a pick is, are not the skills you need for mining nowadays. You've got to know how to run computers and, and deal with big machines and that kind of thing. So uh, I guess the, the short answer here is Schreiner assures everybody it can be done and it's not inconsistent to support mining and be a green candidate at the same time. No, but I, I suspect he will take some heat from some, uh, let's say, Southern Ontario environmental uh, activists over that position. Uh, you know, if nothing else, uh, one of the criticisms of forestry and mining uh, that is is always an issue, no matter how uh, clean the operation itself is, is that you do have to create access roads. And that, of course, has been one of the biggest issues with the Ring of Fire. And so, you know, do those roads uh, slice up protected uh, uh, conservation areas or, or, you know, protected crown lands? Those are the kinds of issues that environmentalists would raise, even if the mining itself is, you know, <laughs> cleaner than Caesar's wife or, or whatever else you want to uh, describe it as. <laughs> That's a good expression. Okay. You know, I don't think we've said yet that the uh, the leaders debate and all of the announcements today uh, took place in the gateway to the north. It all happened in North Bay today. And Stephen Del Duca also gave a Northern Ontario platform announcement today. Why don't you take us through some, through some of the bullet points on that? Right. Uh, the the main headline announcement that uh, Del Duca made was that uh, he said he would work with the federal government to get an immigration plan that would uh, give Ontario the same sort of controls over its uh, immigration policies that uh, the province of Quebec currently has. He wants to use those powers to attract uh, new Canadians to cities uh, specifically in northern Ontario. Um, you know, this is an interesting topic to me because, you know, I think some people overstate how much control over over immigration uh, Quebec actually has, but I think it's uncontroversial to say that they have more than Ontario does. And, you know, that started because of a, a particular concern in Quebec about wanting to attract uh, French-speaking uh, economic class immigrants to, uh, you know, bolster the, the French-speaking population in Canada's French-speaking uh, province. You know, the federal government has not wanted to sign as expansive uh, an agreement with other provinces historically. There was some push to do so uh, back in, uh, you know, late 2019, early 2020. And then, you know, the pandemic happened and <laughs> things got derailed. Um, the other thing that Del Duca did was that he used this uh, instance, this this uh, immigration policy issue to really hammer Doug Ford on uh, his 2018 uh, performance in the debates. I mentioned this a bit earlier that, you know, Doug Ford gave this answer on immigration in 2018 that I, I think just signaled that he he didn't understand the the specifics of this issue in the north. Um, you know, uh, Del Duca also uh, proposing to build uh, more community health centers in northern Ontario and uh, free tuition for uh, nursing and medical students. Very good. Now let us uh, do a ninety degree turn here. Is that right, or is it one hundred eighty degrees? I can't remember how many degrees. Uh, 360 degrees in a circle. So if we're turning around, it's 180 degrees. Okay, let's do a 180 <laughs> here then. Thank you. I'm, gl I'm glad one of us paid attention in math class in order <laughs> to help us with this podcast. Let's follow up on something that you and I, John Michael, talked about last Friday, and namely that is how the parties are handling the daily news conferences with journalists. Uh, you and I have both complained about the fact that um, well, during COVID, we understood that it was one question, one follow-up, because the regular old-fashioned scrums were no longer possible because we couldn't be in the same room as any of the leaders. But now we can be, and yet the one question, one follow-up rule seemed to persist. 
Well, the NDP were the first to change that. They had some regular old-fashioned scrums. People could just fire away questions as long as we kept socially distanced from Andrea Horvath, and that happened. The Liberals were the next to commit to more broad rules, uh, not limiting journalists to one question and one follow-up. You could have more follow-ups if necessary, and that is starting to happen increasingly. Uh, Last Saturday, Joanne Chianello of CBC uh, in Ottawa asked two follow-up questions because she wanted more information from Mr. Del Duca. So kudos to her for following up twice, and kudos to the Liberals for loosening their rules on the hustings to allow for it. And it now happens more frequently. At the Liberal platform drop the other day, there were a couple of other instances where people asked second and third follow-up questions. So, good. We need that kind of spontaneity and a lot less tight choreography in order to get better answers out of our candidates. Doug Ford? Not so much. Same routine as always. A short announcement read off a teleprompter. Ten minutes of Q&A from journalists, one question, one follow-up, no discretion for further follow-ups if the PC leader doesn't answer the question. Now, you might ask, why would you want more follow-ups? And here's the answer. Here's what I mean. This happened the other day in Sault Ste. Marie. A journalist asked Doug Ford, I guess it was last Saturday morning, a pretty simple question. Would you reintroduce the basic income program that the previous liberal government had brought in and that Ford killed when he was elected in 2018? Right? That's an easy question. It's either yes, I will, or no, I won't. That's not quite how the PC leader answered it. Here's how Doug Ford answered it. Well, you know something, what I believe in, in making sure people have an opportunity to get a, a better job and a bigger paycheck. And that's exactly what we're doing. When, when I took over um, as, as premier, this province lost 300,000 jobs under the Liberals. Yeah, I mean, here we go again, JMM. Not the slightest bit responsive to the question. Are you going to bring back basic income, yes or no? There never was an answer to the question. That reporter was out of follow-ups, right, according to the Ford campaign rules. One question, one follow-up, and the reporter couldn't do anything about it. Stephen Del Duca did the same sort of thing during his availability last Saturday morning. He was asked whether he intended to campaign with either of the previous Liberal leaders— Kathleen Wynne or Dalton McGinty, and here was his answer. Uh, Look, anybody in this province who shares my absolute passion, our absolute passion for progress in education, on the environment, on transit, on economic dignity, on a seniors revolution, now I'd be delighted to campaign alongside anyone who wants to deliver that kind of progress for Ottawa and that progress for Ontario. Now, he dodged the question better than Ford did, so I'll give him credit on that, but he did dodge it. Uh, The direct answer is... Well, I'd rather not do any events with my predecessors because, frankly, I'm trying to turn the page on that era of liberal history and start my own. But that sounds a bit ungenerous to say. So we started skating and then cleverly turned the conversation to the people he would be campaigning with. In fairness to Del Duca, no one is asking Doug Ford if he intends to campaign with Mike Harris or Ernie Eves, the two previous Tory premiers. And in fact, I'll bet you neither Harris nor Eves would entertain the idea of campaigning for Ford after he threw both of them under the bus the other day on the issue of selling Highway 407. Harris sold it. Ford said he wouldn't have. Haven't heard what Mike Harris thinks about that, but there you go. So I guess what I'm saying here is let's be consistent here, people. If you're going to try to make Stephen Del Duca squirm with a question about his two predecessors, then it's only fair to ask Doug Ford the same question because I suspect you're going to get the same answer. There we go. I'm out of breath now. Over to you.
Well, and of course, nobody is asking Andrew Horvath if she is going to campaign with uh, her uh, previous NDP uh, predecessor as premier. Uh, there is only the one because, after all, that was Bob Ray. Bob Ray uh, is now rather famously a, a liberal, uh, also a UN ambassador, so probably not going to wade into Ontario's election. <laughs> um, you know, might just have, have bigger fish to fry right now. Um, you know, it, yeah, I, I, I will co-sign your remarks here. Let's, uh, we can try and be a bit more consistent. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Moving along, something we didn't get to yesterday, but which emerged both yesterday and today. Um, the NDP have raised some issues about revenues that have gone into the coffers of two progressive conservative riding associations. Uh, the first, which emerged yesterday, between 2018 and 2020, MPP and Cabinet Minister Lisa McLeod took, quote unquote, an MPP allowance top up of $44,000 from her riding association. Those funds, of course, are raised by donors who get tax breaks for giving that money. Uh, this was according to Catherine Fife, who's the NDP candidate and former MPP from Waterloo. And today, again, the New Democrats announced they'd found another conservative MPP, Khalid Rashid, who received $23,000 in a similar allowance. Now, we should hasten to add, there's nothing illegal about this, but the NDP wants to make note of it because why, JMM? <laughs> well, and I, I will just reiterate, you know, we have to be careful about this stuff around election time. The NDP are not even alleging that any of this uh, breaks a provincial law, uh, but they are raising some concerns here. Uh, the first and foremost being that uh, MPPs are public servants. Uh, they are paid by the taxpayer. Uh, if you are a minister, uh, you, d you get not just your uh, MPP's salary, but you get a ministerial top-up to recognize that that is a, a more difficult, demanding job. Uh, both of the MPPs we've named here uh, had uh, minister uh, portfolios. Um, so there's there's an issue there of, of like, who is this person working for? Are they, they working for taxpayers or are they working for uh, party donors? About those party donors, another issue here is, do those donors know that this is where the money is going? If you wrote a check to the, the riding association uh, for one of these uh, PC candidates, you might have thought that the money was going towards, uh, you know, making signs or, you know, phone banking or, or any of the things that help uh, the party actually win that seat uh, on election day. You might not have known, might not have realized that the money was being, in fact, used to supplement the income of uh, a sitting MPP. So, you know, those are just some of the issues. And then, of course, this is also tied into, as you alluded to, with questions of uh, the, the public uh, finances that all political parties uh, do receive. Uh, they get both a per vote subsidy in Ontario and uh, the donations that are made to political parties uh, are partly uh, refunded by taxes as well. So this kind of an issue can, can really easily just become a, 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 a a very complicated mix of factors, and the NDP say raises uh, serious ethical questions. I think we should also, while we're here, put on the record that there are, I mean, if you're in the cabinet, you can't do this, but if you are not a cabinet minister, if you are an opposition MPP, or frankly, a government backbencher as well, you are allowed to supplement your income by doing other things. And I can think, for example, during the pandemic of a conservative backbencher by the name of Natalia Kuzendova, who's a nurse. And in the heat of COVID, uh, she was pulling shifts in a local hospital on the weekend in order, uh, I would suggest, to um, 
I mean, obviously, she would get a top up in income for doing that, but also because we needed it. Uh, so she was using her nursing skills to go into her local hospital and help out because they needed the help. Uh, I, I know, for example, I think there are others who've been medical doctors who have continued to practice medicine on the side, uh, in addition to getting their money as um, as an MPP. So sometimes, and I'm not saying it's the case here because I don't know, but sometimes there may be some nefariousness around uh, extra money going into the pockets of elected people. And other times, it's actually quite legit. So I just put that on the record for what it's worth. And uh, I just have uh, one other uh, note uh, to make before we close out uh, today's episode. Uh, yesterday, I, I incorrectly stated that uh, the Liberal Party was proposing to raise income taxes on people making uh, $200,000 or more. Uh, I got that threshold wrong. The correct number is uh, $500,000 or more. Uh, as we like to say, I regret the error. Actually, we don't like to say that. I never want to say that, but I do regret the error. <laughs> you know, it's obvious you were paying attention in geometry class because you were able to correct me on a 180 degree angle, but maybe you weren't paying attention in arithmetic. Is that possible? Well, I think it was just there was a lot of numbers yesterday in that liberal platform, and I got that one mixed up. <laughs> there were a lot of numbers. You got that right. Okay, good. That is the On Poly podcast for day seven. A reminder, we are here every weekday during this 43rd general election campaign right through to Election Day. That's June the 2nd. JMM, we'll see you again on the hustings. See you tomorrow, Steve.